Kevin. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship this morning. When is it? Next Saturday is games night. So here's, let's do a little quiz, play a little game. What do you think the most familiar verse from the Bible, don't, don't shout out yet, think, take a minute, the most familiar verse from the Bible, the one probably the most memorized verse in the Bible, take a minute, then think about two, three, and four, okay, think, you know, what would be in through Sunday school, or WANA, or camp, uh, five-day clubs, okay. Somebody, what was your number one you answer to the most familiar verse? How many of you had John 3.16 as number one? Okay. It's kind of like family feud, right? We'd all walk away winners on that one. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Good. Okay, so we kind of agree on number one. Uh... What was your number two? Somebody shout out a number two. Did you have a number two? 828, okay. Um, anybody else have a, what was another number two? Three, yeah, 323 was sort of my number two. The Lord's Prayer, okay, that's, I hadn't thought of the Lord's Prayer. That didn't even make my top four, that's good. Um, Philippians 413. <laughs> Okay, now, whoever was thinking of Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. now is your chance to do, right? We got the beginning, let's get shortest. And anybody who's memorized Psalm 119, we can't wait to hear it. So my, my top four went like this. Uh, John 3.16, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. My fourth one, somewhat influenced by the sermon today, but as I thought about it, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I don't know if that came on your list or not, but that's where we're going to be today. The interesting thing is I thought about John 3.16, and as I listened to, is it Mark? Uh, sharing during the prayer time. The thing about a memory verse is it, it sort of just isolates that verse from what's going on around it. And as I was thinking about John 3.16, John 3.17 is very important too. And in fact, Mark's story, because he says, this is the way we want to roll, because as opposed to throttling the dad, I think that was your alternative, right? John 3.17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I mean, your story tells me the importance of John 3.17 and John 3.16. That God so loved the world, and how did God do that? Jesus came on the scene not to throttle everybody, not to condemn everybody, but that the world through him would be saved. And I think Ephesians 2.8 and 9 kind of suffers from the same thing John 3.16 suffers from is that there's more around it that we sometimes forget about. So take your Bibles, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, take one of the Bibles out of the pews and turn to page uh, 1079. That'll put you in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to find out sort of the rest of the story that's around 
those very familiar words from Ephesians chapter 2 about by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has just finished talking about God's ultimate plan, his ultimate plan for Jesus. And God placed all things under his feet, verse, chapter 1, verse 22. And God has placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So having talked about and sort of reached this pinnacle of God's purposes in Jesus and God's ultimate uh, plan for Jesus, he now talks about us. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, so he's, again, we're back to this you plural, right? So the title of this, the sermon is Grace and Peace to You All. And if you can do that with a nice southern drawl and a nice southern accent, every time we see the word you, think of y'all, okay? Because it is that way. When Paul changes and he says, as for you, he's not just talking to individuals, he's talking to a group of individuals. As for you all, you all were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you all used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Just like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. who we all used to be before God made himself known to us. It's where we were before we became followers of Jesus. We were in this group of everybody else in the world dead in our trespasses and sins. And we all used to follow the ways of the world. And it's interesting how Paul talks about sort of the ways of the world, sort of ground level, but there's this other influence from the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Mark talked about how Satan... Um, you know, sets out to turn us and twist us when we have good intentions and make good decisions to go in, in very positive ways, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But there's also, two, there's the ways of the world. There's just the way the world works. Culture shifting sand, I think, is the way uh, Brian Dirksen talks about it. The ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and these two things work in us to keep us separated and distant and alienated from God. The spiritual powers at work and the human results that come from those spiritual powers at work. Now, remember in the first century, we talked about the sort of pervasiveness of the worship of idols and gods. And every place you went, whether you started work in the morning, when you went into a house, the worship of the Caesars and the Roman uh, leaders was sort of a, a spiritual thing as well. They didn't separate secular and sacred back in the first century. And probably some of your tribes in Africa, don't separate sacred and secular. That's just something we do in the West. This idea that there's religion and there's politics and that somehow those two things need to be separate. That the sacred is different from the secular and there's just sort of realms. That, that wasn't there. The first century didn't separate those things. It was, it was all um, a, a package deal, if you will. And all of us deserve the wrath of God. All of us. All of us, at one point, before Christ made himself known to us, deserve the wrath 
that first song we sang with the picture of Isaiah and the fire in God's eye. That was a that was a captivating image. Before I became a follower of Christ, I would not want to see the fire in God's eye. So that's who we were. That's who all of us were. That's who y'all were. In chapter 2, verse 4, things change. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Who y'all were, now it's who y'all have become. And all because of God. To show, to reveal, to make known his purposes. His incomparable riches are demonstrated in what he has done in our lives. And it's, it's like in chapter 1, there was this sort of abundance terminology of all the wonderful things, all the blessings that God has done for us. Now in chapter 2, Paul sort of takes that and says, hear how they trickle down into your lives. By grace, three times, the word grace has come out. It's not any of our doing. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. The incomparable riches of his grace, for it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. New life is a gift from God. And then Paul closes that off by saying, we are his workmanship. We are his, I mean, wait to say, we are his work of art. It's more than just, it's not just uh, something out of shop class. It, it's, it, it's a tradesman. It's a cabinet maker's idea of workmanship. It's an artisan's expression of their giftedness and their skill. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Part of God's plan. You know, and usually we stop here. And this is by far not the end of the story. This is by far not even the, the pinnacle of the chapter if we stop here, if that's all we, we think Ephesians 2 is about. There's some implications. There's some outcomes that, that are a result of that. Our salvation is not the end of the story. Ephesians chapter 2, let's pick it up at verse 11. Now Paul talks to two groups of people. Having talked to y'all, which is everybody in the congregations in the, in the city of Ephesus, the half a dozen or so churches that met in, in in uh, groups of 30 or 40 around the city of Ephesus, probably. Uh, he's not just talking about them. He's writing to um, 
two groups of people. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, so now he specifies who the you are. Remember that you formerly who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, you know, you start reading that and you say, well, it's no wonder we stopped at verse 10. It just gets kind of complicated. It doesn't kind of flow the same. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What Paul's doing is he's gone from talking about you all to the two groups that were probably in those house churches in the city of Ephesus. One was probably a group of Jewish Christians. Their background was in Judaism. Their background was in the, the people of God of the Old Testament. Jews by birth, now followers of Jesus by faith, and everybody else was Gentile. Whatever part of the Roman Empire they may have come from, Gentiles is everybody else besides the Jewish people. And so he writes to two groups of people, particularly talking to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles were left out as far as the Jewish people were concerned. Basically, the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel, verse 12. They were foreigners to the promises that God had made to the people of Israel. The Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world. Two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles were excluded. Now, there were ways and means that Gentiles could be connected to the Jewish faith. There were ways and means to be uh, brought into some degree of the Jewish faith, but they could never become full citizens of the kingdom of God in the Jewish faith. The key is, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And that's just, Paul is just kind of simply saying this. You and I have to understand the history behind Jew and Gentile relationships. You and I need to understand that for over 700 years, Gentiles started out with the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. For 700 years, Gentiles had been telling Jews what to do, where to go, and how they were going to get them. 700 years. The Gentiles had basically put the squeeze on the Jewish people. And, and you know, that's the, it's the conquest, it's, it's the exile in the Old Testament, it's the horrific things that Gentiles did to the people of God throughout history. And there's this animosity that, I mean, Jews hate Gentiles. The Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, that doesn't mean anything in our pet culture. I mean, Graham and I met yesterday to go over stuff for the board meeting, and here's the strapping guy, twice my size, petting his little dog. Wow. I mean, it doesn't mean anything in our culture to call somebody a dog. But if you understand, sort of get out of our, our sort of pet culture, as far as the Jews were concerned, Gentiles were those dogs. To call somebody the son of an uncircumcised Philistine is not a nice phrase. 
And the Gentiles just thought the Jewish people were strange. They just thought they were weird. They just thought, I, you know, there's no work on Saturday. There's no work on the Sabbath thing. There's no work on Saturday. I mean, people worked seven days a week back in that day, right? It's like, and, and you can't do work on Saturday. I mean, and, and the rituals and the ceremonies and so on that they had, there, there was this underlying backstory of hatred and mistrust generation and generation. And, and it, I mean, how bad was it? Well, think of any civil war. Think, think of, if you watch Ken Burns' uh, documentary on the Civil War and the hatred of North and South and the animosity and the mistrust, just flat out, what'd you say? I want to throttle you. I mean, no holds barred. It's going to be the catchphrase. I knew that was going to happen. Sorry. Think of, you hear about the civil war in Yemen, and you see the results of what happens in Yemen or Syria. Um, think of any animosity uh, between two groups of people. Back in Rwanda, between the Hutus and the Tutsis. In Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, the hatred there. In South Africa, the hatred there. Any sectarian conflict, any ethnic cleansing, put them all together and you get a sense of how Gentiles felt about Jews and how Jews felt about Gentiles. And Paul is saying, now because of Christ, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now apparently, in the temple, in the rebuilt temple by Herod, in the time of Jesus, time of Paul, in the rebuilt temple, there was a wall that was, was put up in the temple. And apparently, there's some debate as to how the story of accuracy of this, but basically there was a sign that said, trespassers will be executed. There was a wall. Gentiles this far and no further. There was a wall. Not just trespassers will be prosecuted, trespassers will be executed. Jesus is our peace who has made the two one. So think about yourself. Think about, think about the Civil War. Never mind black America versus white America. Never mind indigenous Canada versus white Canada. Just think of the Civil War. And all of a sudden you're being told the war is over. It's done. The wall has been broken down. The barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by, by abolishing, how did he do this? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The thing with, it's not up for debate. It's not up for negotiation. It's, it's not up for, I like this part of it, I don't like that. It's just something God has done. This is because Jesus died, the end of verse 13, through the blood, Verse 15, in his flesh. Verse 16, through the cross. 
This is the result. This is, this is the end game. What the Prince of Peace has done for you. Now, I think we got to stop there. And, and God has done all this. So when Jews and Gentiles are hearing this, it's not like, okay, let's, let's have some peace talks. Let's do some negotiations. Let's make some bilateral agreements or something like that. No, it's just done. It's over. It's finished. It's how God has accomplished his purposes. God does it. And so the Jews and Gentiles sitting around that little room when they're hearing Paul's letter read now have to decide, how do I feel about the Gentile across the room from me? Or how do I feel about the Jew across the room from me? Whatever their background is. Here's the new way it is. God has done it. God has done it. He sent a messenger to declare it, and now I got to do something with it. See, and I, I don't think we get to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and we love being told that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not, it's not of ourselves, it's not of anything we have done, it is a gift of God. But so what? What's the purpose? Where does that go? God has made the church. See, that's the thing here. Verse 14. Verse 14. He himself is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments. His purpose was to create in himself one new man, one new being, one new entity. One, if you will, one new life form that nobody had ever seen before, and it's called the church. Two become one. The Ephesians 5 isn't the first time Paul talks about two becoming one. It starts back here. Two become one. Something God has done. And the operative word is peace. Four times Paul uses the word peace to describe what this new humanity called the church is all about. How do we look at one another? This is all, then this all becomes how we look at one another, right? How we treat one another, how we see one another. Uh, Mark, you now see the Father differently. How did that happen? Right? Because we know, we know what the Bible says, but then to accept it, to receive it, and to allow that to change our thinking, we need to complete the action that God has started by by working it out in our lives, by letting our pride go, letting our disobedience go, letting our hatred go, letting our selfishness go. Access to God is granted through Jesus. Verse 13, through his blood. Verse 15, through, in his flesh. And verse 16, through the cross. That's, that's everything that happened. Through his blood, in his flesh, through the cross. 
And the result is one new person, one new humanity. The community of Christ followers everywhere. It's not a hybrid. It's not a clone. It's not a redo. It's a one new being. It's not a makeover. It's not a rebranding. It's an entirely new entity that no one had ever seen before and that God is now revealing to the world. It's the church. Neither Gentile nor Jewish. It's one new creation. It's God's way of showing the world what he has done. The church is God's way of showing the world what he has accomplished. through Jesus. And there is no other way. The church is the hope for the world. It's how God gets it done. We talked about that in chapter 3 when we started. Ephesians in chapter 3, we, we looked at verse 10, 9 and 10, because of the whole idea of God revealing himself. What's God revealing? 3, 9, 3, 10. God's intent, verse 10, was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. How does the message get out? Through the church. How does the message get out to Africa? Through the church. How does the message get out to BC? Through the church. How does the message get out to Estevan? Through the church. And what's the vehicle? The reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are brought together. There is no more separation. They now get along. Get along with God and they get along with each other. The incredible riches of God's grace, the astounding wealth of his mercy, the overwhelming goodness of his faithfulness to his promises. And this is the result. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I don't know when the last time was you stood on a railroad track and looked down the track to the distance and all of a sudden the two tracks become one. But that's the picture. That's the picture. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Let's keep reading verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer aliens, foreigners and aliens. You're no longer immigrants or refugees. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer on the fringe, but you are now fellow, he's back to talking to the Gentiles again. You are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that whole understanding, I think, of Jew and Gentile and what God did to make the two one, to reconcile the two of them in Christ, in his flesh, on the cross, through his blood, helps understand how the church is to function in that way. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So that's the picture. That's the picture Paul paints of how, of what God's new way of doing life is all about. What we have become in Jesus, what the temple was to Israel, the church is for the world. 
And there's this sort of rising crescendo as you, as you read through the chapter. And if you stop at verses 9 and 10, you haven't really got to, to, the, to the pinnacle. But where does that leave us this morning? This one new being, this Jew and Gentile reconciliation is this one new being, something that no one had ever seen before, the world had never seen before. That's the church. That's the workmanship of God. That's the craftsmanship of God. That's the, the skill of God. This is, this is what he's crafted. We call it the church. What picture do you want to paint? What picture do we want to paint for the world to see, for Estevan to see? Hang out with some guys in Regina, a bunch of retired guys. We go with Y and we go for coffee. And uh, last year, sometime the YMCA in the Northwest was having some issues, and um, there was talk amongst the guys about, okay, who's going to go on the board of the Y to kind of sort out the issues, right? So, um, so none of, none of us went on the board, but then they got word after the board meeting, and so. Uh, we were, I was hearing about what, what it was like at the board meeting for the Y, and I said to them, man, it was nasty. It was like, you know, people taking shots and this and that. And I said, man, that just sounds like a church meeting. Right? Um, Julian the Apostate back in the 4th century said, no wild beasts are so dangerous to man as Christians are to one another. Are we really one new humanity, one new creation, or are we just the same old thing with a different address? I know we don't talk about it very much, but there's a whole group of our kids that are probably not too connected with the church today because of what they've seen happen in the church or what they've seen happen to their parents. They're called the Duns. They have a label called the Duns. My kids are done. I don't know if you're feeling kids but my kids are done. Some of my Bible college students are done. They've seen what the church can do to others, and they said, I'm done. I'm out. That's so far from the picture in Ephesians chapter 2. This one new humanity, this one new entity, this thing we call the church and what it's supposed to be. See, the interesting thing here is God says, this is the way it is. This is what I've done. I've reconciled Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish person could sit in that little room as Paul's letters being read and say, wait a minute, I got something to say about that. Do you know how they treated my family? Do you know how they treated my ancestors? No, you got nothing to say. This, this, God's, this is God's doing. The God has done this. It's over. It's finished. This is how God has planned it. Jew and Gentile reconciled. We talked last week about all being on the same ground before, before God. Jew and Gentile reconciled. This is the way it is. That's, to see the church as God sees the church. That's the trick. That's the, see, that's what that Jewish Christian and that Gentile Christian had to do in that little room. They had to see the person across the room the way God sees them. 
This is how God sees them now. This is now how you need to see them. So figure out a way to deal with it. Because this is how it is. To see the church as God sees the church. To see things as God sees them. To say yes to God, and now I will figure out what it means to roll this way and not throttle them. That's a far different picture. And, it, and I realize it's a bit of a leap back in the first century to talk about a half a dozen churches meeting in the city of Ephesus and reading Paul's letters that gets passed around to the different churches. There's 48,000 denominations in the world. 48,000 denominations in the world. So when we talk about this sort of one new entity, this one new, it, it's, it's hard to get our heads around it. And then you stop and realize that of those 48,000 denominations, that's risen 29% since the year 2000. 29%. There was only 34,000 or so denominations back in 2000. There's 5,400 mission sending agencies in the world. That's risen 28% since 2000. You know what I wonder when I read those numbers, especially the mission agencies? How many of those started because somebody was upset with the current mission agency and said, I'm going to go do my own thing? That is so far from Ephesians chapter 2 and God's purposes. Christian Missionary Alliance, we describe ourselves, we are self described as a big tent. Beyond the doctrinal statement, we have room for various points of view. That applies to the Holy Spirit, particularly. That applies to views on the ministry roles for women. But we see ourselves as a big tent. Now, there are, we draw lines. That's true. But I like the alliance because it sees itself as a big tent. And there can be diversity and there can be different approaches. And that, we're all different. Did you guys do the natural church development stuff here when it was a hot topic? I mean, we, that's just the way we do church, right? There are trends. There, there are flavors of the month that come along, and we all kind of get on board, and we do it. But natural church development, talk, we're, we're three colors, right? Uh, red, blue, and green. Um, red, I think, is the relational people. Blue is the um, intuitive, um, more mystical people. And green are the structural, doctrinal kind of people. We're all different. We're all different. We can't all be doctrinal. We can't all be structural. We can't all be intuitive mystic. And we can't all be relational. We need each other. We need each other. And we need to figure out what that blend looks like. The get blend of our gifts and our abilities. The ways we serve. The ways we lead. The ways we follow. To complement and support each other. And part of that starts with at least looking around the room. And I like what Susanna said in her prayer. God put us together in this congregation. God put us together. God brought us in. I love Proverbs 16.9. In his heart, a person plans their steps, but the Lord directs the path. So I like what Susanna said. We're here. We might think we're here because we chose to come here, but I believe what Susanna said. God brought us here. Now we got to figure out how to work together, to complement and support one another. Some of us are internal people. Some of us are, are, are focused on helping people who are in the church. Others of us are external people looking reaching out to the law. Some of us are grace people. Some of us are truth people. Some of us are leaders. Some of us are followers. We all have different styles. We all have different senses. I remember traveling with Rhoda Peters to Cuba. We went with, to Cuba with Trish and Curtis. Uh, I think it was 2010. 
And we were traveling in the east end of Cuba. Uh, Rhoda was in the van. There was six of us, plus Curtis and Trisha and the boys. And we pulled into this town. We're, we'd been there for a while. We're driving in this town um, west of Santiago. We were in the east end of Cuba. We drove in this town west of Santiago. And Rhoda said, oh, I can feel the oppression. And I'm oblivious in the back seat going, I was grateful Rhoda did, but that's sort of how she's wired, right? That's how, and, and we need each other. That's why we need each other. We may not have all the same sensitivities, but we need each other. In this last week, I've been in a room with an evangelist on two separate occasions. Those who are evangelists and have the gift of evangelism think very differently than I do and think very differently than most of us do in churches. We need them. We need them. But we need to figure out how to get along. And then somebody comes along and says, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? I remember hearing a few years back, some leadership seminar, somebody said, all leaders are readers. And I believe that. Until I had a pretty intense, significant relationship with a leader who is not a reader. I don't buy that line anymore. Not all leaders are readers. So, so how, you know, it's all about how we get along and how we complement one another. Are we building a church with walls and fences? For Jesus is our peace. He has made the two one and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Are we building a church with walls and fences or are we building a church with open arms? I love the picture in Isaiah. God says, all day long I hold out my arms to an obstinate and a rebellious people. Our arms open, our arms closed. So what do we do? Once again, we go back to the cross. Once again, we look at the cross and Jesus through his blood, Jesus in his flesh, Jesus through the cross. This is what he's done. It's not up for debate. It's not up for me to pick and choose. This is what he has done. He has made the two one. How we see others is the way God sees others. How we see one another is the way God sees one another. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. There you go.